Hey everyone, our friends from artsreligionculture.org who we interviewed in episode 14 are having an amazing gathering this spring in Boston on March 9th and 10th. This is going to be an awesome time in which creativity, imagination, and spirituality come out and play together. The Rising is going to be there and we'd love to have you join us. You can register at theopoeticsconference.org and listeners of The Rising get 10% off the registration fee with the code THERISING. We hope to see you there. We want to know, how can spirituality transform our social movements? And how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. And welcome to The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. I'm Rebecca Burnt. And I'm Chelsea McMillan. And we're spiritual directors exploring the intersection of spirituality and social justice. Today, we're going to be diving into this topic of fierce compassion. Uh, sometimes people think that compassion is being open-hearted, and, and that often sort of translates into this um, uh, being kind to everyone and thinking good thoughts about everyone. <laughs> Um, but it's a lot more complex than that. Yeah, kind of like a wishy-washy niceness sometimes it gets viewed that way, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and so like what does it really mean to have compassion? Well, it's interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot because we are recording this on the Monday after the Valentine's Day shootings in mm. Florida. And um, I have to say like so the last major shooting – that I remember, I think, was the one in Las Vegas. I, mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, this just happens every few months. I know. So I think We're that so was the last numbed one. numbed out. Totally, totally. And that's really how I felt around the Las Vegas one. I was just like, yeah, this is sad, but, like, I just – I can't even go deeply into this right now because mm -hmm. it just – like, you know, it, it's – you get – I was numb to it. And so – yeah, when this one happened on Valentine's Day, I think I was just like, yeah, 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 this is sad. Everyone's going to post the same stuff on Facebook that they always do. And um, I was scrolling through my feed one day. It was maybe that night or maybe Thursday, I think, Thursday night, actually. And and um, someone had posted a video. And to its credit, I mean, to Facebook's credit, it's something that I'm sure people would, like, flag as being a violation of standards because – it's violent, but what they did mm -hmm. was they kind of had the it blurred out, and they had a warning that said like, "Look, this is has graphic content. Sort of watch at your own risk." And then if you chose to click play, you could see the video. And mm -hmm. um, it was a video. It was one of the videos that was taken by one of the kids uh, during the shooting, um, and it showed these kids, you know, sort of like running and like trying to find cover. But you also saw bloody dead bodies on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm I'm a nurse. I'm not someone who's squeamish. I've cared for trauma patients. I've seen mm. really a lot of disgusting things and disturbing things. And so, you know, I, I say that to say that, like, I, I I'm not easily shocked, but um, it really hit me in a really deep and visceral way, mm. where just seeing that 
like seeing like kids <laughs> bloody bodies on the floor of a school while the rest of the kids are are running around in terror i think just I broke me open yeah. in some way right like to to see that um it it made me it made me angry about what's happening it made me mm-hmm. like it just it, it it hit me like it hit me really deeply and um yeah, I don't know. It, it, so then, so so I was kind of like feeling that, right? I was feeling that. And then this weekend I was on call at work and I was at, at work with just one other coworker because it was just kind of like a skeleton crew situation. I, I would do work in a hospital part-time as a nurse. And um, the subject of the shootings came up. And basically, without getting too far into it, we got to the point where I was like, I understand, like, hunting culture and stuff like that. Like, I I have family from the South. Like, I I get that, like, we're not just going to go and, like, take everyone's guns away, you know, and that's that's fine. Mm -hmm. But, like, can't we just talk about maybe, like, taking away assault weapons? Right. (laughs) Can't we, like, talk about some reasonable gun control? And this person was just like, nope, it's not going to do anything to change anything. You just can't change. And it was all, like, she had gone from the, like, oh, isn't it so sad that this happened and this man shot, this boy shot everybody and, like, blah, 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 blah. It's, like, so tragic. And, no, but there's nothing we can do to change it. No, no, there's nothing we can do to fix it. And, And when I was trying to say... I really disagree. She's like, nope, you're wrong. You're wrong. And I got to the point where I was like really fucking angry with her. Yeah. And I, you know, on, on reflection, I realized like, you know, I, like me arguing or even trying to present cogent points is is completely unproductive because the truth is like when you're stuck in a place of comfort, like when you're in that place of like, I want to hang on to like my lifestyle and my beliefs and I don't want to be confronted with anything that might like upset that in any way mm-hmm. or cause me to think about things a different way, you're going to resist any, it doesn't matter what kind of evidence or what kind of argumentation you give to people because they're yeah. just totally going to resist it. And they're going to say like, Oh, that's fake news or, you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> so um, I, I, I knew I was like, I could feel myself getting really angry. And I, she was like saying something to me and I said, stop, like you, I'm going to stop and you need to stop. And I said, I am so angry with you right now. And you just need to stop. <laughs> and then, like, I uh, fortunately we were at a uh, we were at a point where we were kind of like sitting around waiting for something to happen, like we um, waiting essentially to receive a patient from the operating room. So we didn't really have anything going on. So mm-hmm. I was able to say, like, I'm going to go downstairs for a little bit. <laughs> I'm just going to go down to the cafeteria, <laughs> eat some French fries, <laughs> and like walk around a little bit and just like chill out. And and you know, then I came back and we just we just worked together and kept things pleasant and did not talk mm-hmm. about anything difficult in any way. Mm-hmm. But um, I was so angry. And I remember being so angry and just like having that moment of rage and being like, this is why people shouldn't have access to guns. Right. Like, <laughs> I'm so pissed right now. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've been thinking about like the, the diff, like what it, it means to have compassion because I didn't, and I, I don't have compassion for her, her viewpoint, I have to be mm. honest. That's not to say I couldn't be compassionate towards this person if she was going through something difficult or whatever, right. you know. But it, it was like, I had that moment of feeling like, oh, feeling bad or guilty for being angry. Like, why wasn't I just, like, really loving and compassionate? I was like, no, you know, it's okay for me to be angry. And, like, I pro- I pro- did the right thing by just saying, like, let's stop. Let mm. me go cool off. <laughs> like... Um, and also 
it really made me think about compassion. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to talk to Willa here, who who um, a lot of her activism has been around environmentalism, and, and so she talks a lot about having this deep compassion for the earth and for the beings that we're all interdependent with in, in this ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. But I've been thinking a lot about compassion as like willing a willingness to be present to the deep horror and the deep pain mm-hmm. of the world, right? Yeah. We talk a little bit in the in the interview about how compassion means to suffer with. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I watched that video, I can't truly understand or feel what it what it was to be there. Uh, to mm-hmm. be one of those students in that situation. Oh, I but, can't imagine. Yeah, but I get a deeper sense of it than I do just reading about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I have two thoughts. And one is, because um, you talk about wanting to have compassion for this woman, or I don't know if you want to, <laughs> but like well, how I feel like I'm supposed to compassion. because that's right, exactly. like the, the but programming also, that we're given. If you take that 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 definition of compassion, which is to suffer with, you know, is someone who's sort of holding on to their comforts and their, you know, maybe even cognitive dissonance, you know, is that like, is that really, does that really call for compassion? Like this, like mm-hmm. suffering with her, you know what I mean? I mean, right, not that right. she, as a, I mean, as a human being, I'm sure she suffers. Um, and I'm sure you can have compassion for, for those things. But I think that there's, there's something else required. And that's when like speaking truth to power or, you know, yeah. Like that's being compassionate is like holding holding people yes. accountable to to maybe their own morals of maybe pro life or you know um, or even just like being a decent human being like yeah I don't know the right answer but I just wonder if if those are really the times when when and and obviously it's not necessarily effective to always be like arguing with people who can't hear what you're really saying. Um, right. But I don't know. You know, I think it's sort of like a tension. And then I was also thinking about something I heard. I forget who said this to me. I think they were quoting someone, but it was like, compassion is walking down the street and seeing a man kicking a dog mm-hmm. and having compassion for the man. Mm-hmm. And that struck me too. Like, how, how can we have you know, obviously you have like, you feel sorry for this dog (laughs) being kicked, but like, you know, it's like true compassion to have compassion for the perpetrators, you know, like what kind of suffering must they be going through? You know, I'm just thinking of this kid who shot up a bunch of kids, you know? Yeah, no, I was just gonna say like, I actually, I, to me, it's much easier to actually find some compassion for him because I assume that you have to be suffering a tremendous amount to be able to to, to get yeah. to that place of anger and violence where yeah. you're going to do something like that, especially at such a young age. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know the kid's story. I know that he was living with a family that was not his own family. That He uh, he didn't have a family that he could live with. Um, mm. But, yeah, so so I, I can have some compassion for that. It's harder for me to have compassion for the people who just yeah. choose to turn a blind eye. Um, yeah. But even, you know, what you were just saying reminds me of something. There was a really great essay by Lori Penny on uh, longreads.com this Mm. past week. And she's talking specifically about the Me Too, um, all the Me Too stuff. And um, 
she she speaks about a situation in her own life of someone who had um, essentially been a rapist and had I think had raped her mm. at one point or sexually harassed wow. her or assaulted her in some way, but someone who was still a part of her community and who she cared about. And she talks about she and other women um, really trying to 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 get this person to see the error of their ways and to really um, like they had chosen like not to name him in public. They were like trying to like give him help. She was like trying to be there for him. She was actually on suicide watch for this guy because he was just having wow. a lot of women say like, oh, there's been this, these, you, you have this pattern of behaviors and also seeing him as a human that they cared about mm-hmm. and they wanted to be able to change and to grow. And finally, one woman said like, I, you know what, we've been talking with him about this stuff for like years and he hasn't changed. And she ended up kind of outing him, I think, in public Mm. and telling her story. And as a result, like all these other women that none of them had ever been in contact with came forward and started telling their stories. And Lori Penny finally, she kind of finally said like, you know, maybe, maybe like in trying to do all this emotional caretaking for this guy to get him to change, Mm. maybe it really wasn't that kind. And she closes her essay with saying, like, for a long time, I thought that I was being loving to men by expecting less of them. I thought wrong. Mm. I was not being loving. I was not being kind. I was only being nice. And nice is not enough. Wow. And I think to me, there's something there about that idea of fierce compassion that, like, fierce compassion can hold the complexity of who you are and the pain around how you got to to be who you are, but it it doesn't, it also can hold you to account and say, like, I believe that you can do better and I'm going to, like, demand that from you. Right. You know? And that's actually exactly what I think what Willa says later in this interview, which is um, that compassion is holding each other in um, our highest good or our highest wisdom, Mm -hmm. you know? And, And I think if you can really do that in a way that holds people accountable, you know, hold, see them in their deepest wisdom and hold them accountable to that when they aren't acting that way, you know? Yeah. That's really where fierce compassion comes in. Yeah. Well, turning towards the interview, um, why don't we go ahead and listen? Great. Willa Miller, PhD, is the founder and spiritual director of Natural Dharma Fellowship in Boston, Massachusetts, and its retreat center, Wonderwell Mountain Refuge in Springfield, New Hampshire. She was authorized as a Dharma teacher and lineage holder, or Lama, in the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism after completion of two consecutive three-year retreats in the 90s. She is an editor, author, and translator, and holds a doctorate from Harvard University in Religion, and is currently visiting lecturer in Buddhist ministry at Harvard Divinity School. Her academic teaching interests include Tantra and the body, Buddhism and ecology, and Buddhist contemplative care, among other topics. Outside of academia, her teaching specialties include the body as a door to awakening, natural meditation or Mahamudra, and heart cultivation or Lojong. She is interested in the practical integration of meditation into daily life and has participated as an advisor in several scientific studies on meditation. Well, welcome, Willa. It's so great to have you with us today on The Rising. Um, I think to get started, you know, something that Rebecca and I talk a lot about on this podcast is sort of how um, people who are more in spiritual in the spiritual camp and people who are more in the activist camp um, can actually really help each other and come together and, and 
share practices and things like that. And um, so I'm really interested in hearing about how that's shown up in your work and in, in the Buddhist community and in your work with eco-dharma and um, how have those things, those two things come together for you, spirituality and activism? Well, thanks. Thanks, Chelsea. It's really nice to be here and Rebecca to be here with the two of you. I'm really honored to, to be here. Yeah. So I've lately been doing some work in the intersection between Eastern spiritual traditions, especially the Buddhist tradition and practices, and and the activist community, um, the community of climate activists and even even climate scientists and, and spokespeople for the planet. And I've really started to reflect on how these two communities are could really help each other. You know, we we each have our own. A set of tools, our own technologies. In the, in the spiritual tradition, uh, in Buddhism, in this contemplative tradition, we've, we spend a lot of time uh, going into the inner world and reflecting on uh, how to meet our reactivity gracefully, how to um, deepen in, in practices of compassion and of wisdom. And in the activist community, there's such an emphasis on on change making and on uh, rising to the occasion of, of social and eco justice, which is also so deeply important for uh, world transformation. We might say that that contemplatives are focused on personal transformation and inner transformation, and and the activists on world transformation, but actually. There's a lot of intersection there too, you know, because we're we're all human. So lately, I've been reflecting a lot on on how those two technologies can come together, two sets of technologies, and help each other. You know, I think I think what what Buddhists have to offer, what Asian traditions have to offer, is our ways of of being with reactivity, um, and the the issue of climate change is so. Uh, big and and in some ways, what we're doing to the planet is so devastating um, that just in order to to lean into it, we have to deal with our own grief and our own fear. So, um, the contemplative community has a lot to offer with regard to how to cope with our grief, how to cope with our anger, and cope mm-hmm. with our fear when we're doing while we're doing meaningful work in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely see. I know something that's come up. Um, you know, there's sort of this criticism of activists of like, like I, I remember a friend saying to me that she didn't really know that she wanted to be an activist. She was like, yeah, I want to do good in the world, but aren't activists just people who go around like screaming their ideas about things? Um, but then at the same time, you know, I think that there's a criticism of people who are sitting on their mats meditating as just like being navel gazers and and, you know, sort of narcissists and just like, oh, I'm going to work on myself and that's how I'm going to change the world. But it sounds like that these two, you know, can come together and kind of bring each other out in ways that haven't been happening before. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that sometimes the criticism of uh, contemplative uh, communities is is sometimes warranted, you know, I think, I think that we can get a little withdrawn into our world of inner transformation and, 
and forget that there are uh, really important issues uh, to be addressed in, in the wider world. And, and so the, the activist communities have a lot to offer us with regard to their commitment to social and to eco-change, um, to really um, pushing our society forward um, through milestones of transformation that, you know, we as Buddhists really need to, to think about our role in all of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, that, we, that we need to, um, it's, it's, it's not enough to remain on the cushion. Mm-hmm. We really do need to take the ideals of wisdom and compassion that we so admire and, and strive to develop into, into the world to make an impact. So, so I think that, yeah, these two orientations coming together, we're stronger together. Um, mm-hmm. activists and and um, contemplatives than we are um, being remaining completely separate. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'm curious, can you tell us some ways in which you've seen that happen in your own work and in the communities that you're a part of? Yeah, so, you know, a few um, years ago at, at our retreat center in New Hampshire, uh, Wonderwell, we sponsored an, an eco-dharma conference and, and it was really sort of grew out of um, a conversation that I had with some, a couple of people in my sangha, my congregation, who were, were saying that you know, they were really struggling with their own grief around climate change and the degradation of the environment. And, and how could we, how can we bring our practices to bear on this grief? And 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 also more broadly, they were they were wondering, you know, how can we make our practices relevant, um, you know, as and and so anyway, out of that conversation, uh, we started to envision the possibility of of bringing together uh, people. Maybe maybe we weren't the only ones concerned with this. You know, maybe there are other people out there who are actually struggling with the same questions. And so we we kind of floated. Um, this idea of an eco-dharma conference out into the, the wider Buddhist world to see what kind of interest would come back. And in fact, we did uh, receive responses nationally from, from, from teachers and um, Buddhist teachers, Buddhist guides, and, and just Buddhist practitioners who did were interested in wanting to come together to talk about those issues. So, so actually it showed up in my life um, recently in the last few years in these kinds of gatherings. There have been maybe three of those kinds of gatherings at Wonderwell, and um, I've attended one at the Garrison Institute in New York, too. Gatherings of activists and Buddhists or Buddhist activists coming together just to talk about um, how can we make our practice relevant. Yeah. So it showed up in my life in, in that way. Um, and also p- personally, um, in you know, I've, 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 I have, from the time I was really young, uh, had a, a really strong connection to the natural world. And, you know, it's, I think of my, my father as my first uh, meditation teacher, actually, in certain ways. He used to take me out into the wilderness in Montana in the summers and, and just sit with me in, in complete silence for half an hour at a time. We'd hike for a long time and then we'd sit in silence. And, and he would just encourage me to close my eyes 
and listen to the sounds of nature and and then to, we'd open our eyes and gaze at the sky and he, he would just kind of lead me in these nature practices of how to connect to the sounds of the birds um, to the movements of animals and to the to the wonder of an open sky and so he, he really introduced me to this to this sort of nature meditation you might say and so you know as I was coming into a deeper relationship with Buddhism over time in my life, um, uh, growing up as a teenager and then in college getting more and more deeply involved, you know, I'd often have these flashbacks to those moments with my father in Montana in the wilderness um, and making the connection between the meditation practices I was learning and, and somehow being in the natural world. So, um, so that's continued to uh, to be with me over time. And, and so I, I have this personal inclination that our, our practice of meditation really can't be divorced uh, from nature or we lose something when it is. Um, and that, and that, that connection between the natural world and meditation and, and the state of the planet can be made more explicit so that our, our practice is actually uh, grounding us in a relationship to the natural world Mm. Yeah, Willa, you know, what you just said, it makes me think about how, um, especially here in Western culture, we sometimes see these contemplative practices as something new that have like been brought to us from the East. <laughs> um, but the truth is, if we think about the way that our ancestors lived and the way that they had to live, the way they were so reliant on the land in order to provide food for them and other things— it seems to me that they must have had these deep contemplative practices um, that they needed in order to survive, uh, that they had to be in tune with the earth and the in nature in some ways, um, and that we've we've lost them. Yeah, I think you know the idea of urban culture is actually a pretty new idea, or or when you look back. Uh, a thousand years, it wasn't true that most people lived in cities the way that it is today. And, and even those that lived in cities were in relationship with the land um, mm -hmm. in, in ways that we aren't today. And, and I, do, I, I do happen to know that, or rather there's, there's lots of evidence that Contemplative practices, at least in the Asian tradition and probably in Western traditions as well, emerged from deeply natural environments. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the Buddha encouraged his monks to meditate in the forest. And there are lots of his, the early Buddhist teachings talk about monks going deep into the forest in, in order to develop their contemplative practice. So, so there's something about the natural world that, that makes meditation easy. Yeah, I mean, I would say certainly within the Christian tradition, it emerges, um, and I, I say that as a Christian, like our, our contemplative practices emerge from a practice of people going into the desert. 
and being in that environment, sometimes in isolation and sometimes in community. But um, yeah, there was very much a trend of people choosing to leave the cities and the urban environments that had developed and to go into this place of exile in some ways, and um, whether through choice or through uh, compulsion. But that's where that contemplative tradition of the desert fathers and mothers comes from. Mm. Yeah, it seems like uh, that practice of going into the desert or into natural ecosystems as a as an intentional practice is more important now than ever because yeah. these ecosystems are in peril. Yeah. And if we don't spend time there, we won't learn to value them and then we won't protect them at the moments when they need us most. Mm. So I do think that, yeah, there's something to be, to be learned or, um, from from these early spiritual traditions that took so much inspiration from the natural world that maybe that model um, is, is something that we could revive in this present moment as uh, a way of of developing compassion for the planet and for the natural world as a way to um, encourage our activism on its behalf, stewardship. Mm. So is this eco-dharma, because you use that term, um, and it sounds so intuitively like, oh, I get what that means, <laughs> you know, but I don't, I don't really know where that started. And I think a lot of people might not know um, what eco-dharma means. Is that like a spiritual practice for the planet or? Mm. Yeah, eco-dharma is a wing, we might say a wing of engaged Buddhism. And an engaged Buddhism is a term that, that came about in the 80s uh, or so as a way to describe this, this increasing interest in the Western Buddhist community in social and ecological engagement. And, and so eco-dharma is, we might say, a, a wing of engaged Buddhism. And, and it has to do with a coming together of ecological concerns with spiritual practice. And actually this word dharma in, in eco-dharma means uh, something like spiritual practice or even spiritual calling. Uh, something like that one's dharma is one's calling um, or one's, mm. um, one's natural path. So, so the idea of eco-dharma is bringing together one's calling with a, a sensitivity to the needs of the planet. And, and you know, these are, this is a time when, when we really may need to, to widen our idea of what spiritual practice means. Um, I don't know all, um, all that much about other religious traditions, but certainly in, in the Buddhist tradition, we've, we've sort of fashioned over time the notion of, of Buddhism as being connected to pretty uh, anthropocentric rituals and 
you know, ones that have humans at the middle, in the middle, um, humans doing rituals or chanting and so forth. And, um, and the center of the attention being directed towards human compassion and concerns. But, but this is really a time when we, to survive, even as a species, we're going to have to widen our idea of what spiritual or religious practice does, what it means. Even widen our idea of, of ethics. Is our compassion only going to be for sentient beings or human beings? Or is it time for us to widen our compassion to include plants and ecosystems and, and, and the wider um, planetary Gaia. So ecodharma mm-hmm. is is it cons- is a wing of Buddhism that's starting to think about these these questions. Think about how, even how we're constructing ourselves or thinking about ourselves as a religious tradition. Hmm. And so, what does that look like? I mean, are new rituals being formed or mm-hmm. new practices or just... Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And, and, you know, some of us are, are starting to rewrite some of the traditional prayers that we do to include the planet, to include animals, to include insects and winged creatures and hoofed creatures. And um, that, that uh, yeah, so we are. We're starting to rewrite those prayers. There's a... There's a prayer um, that we do in the Buddhist tradition called the Bodhisattva vow. And in the Bodhisattva vow, we, we make a vow to attain enlightenment, not for our own sake, but for the sake of, of all beings. And, and lately, some of us have been rewriting, rethinking, and reteaching that vow as actually not taking a vow to attain enlightenment for all beings, but even taking a vow to attain enlightenment for the welfare of the planet as a whole. Mm. So, so slowly, yeah, these prayers are, are being rewritten. Well, I want to know what does enlightenment mean in that context then? Mm-hmm. What does enlightenment mean? You know, this is such a good question. And, and I think that, that itself is an idea in evolution, what enlightenment actually means. And you can ask two different teachers what enlightenment means and get two different answers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are um, as many ways to understand it, perhaps, as there are practitioners. Um, but, you know, within Buddhism, in the tradition in which I practice, enlightenment is understood as a recognition of the innate wisdom of one's own consciousness. A recognition of the innate wisdom of one's own consciousness is enlightenment. The idea of enlightenment is that it's not something in the future, but that it's something already present. So the path isn't a path of creating something new, that hasn't yet been realized. The path is actually a path of finding something old that's already present within, mm. a path of discovery. So enlightenment is that. But, you know, there's a, a wing of a Buddhism called Tantric Buddhism, 
there's a there's a side of Buddhism that is informed by by Tantra. And in Tantric tradition, enlightenment is almost a, a more um, societal idea that it's possible for this innate purity of our consciousness to to become manifest in the world. And in fact, Tantra really focuses on working with the manifest, with what what the world is and how to how to transform not just the self but also the world. And and um, so we might also say that enlightenment has something to do with imagining the world that we want to live in and then making that manifest. I'm wondering, Willa, can you tell us a little bit more? Because that sounds amazing. And that's a lot of what we talk about here, too. Um, We sometimes use the phrase uh, that comes from writer Charles Eisenstein, the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. Mm. And I'm wondering, is is tantric Buddhism the tradition in which you teach, or is it uh, something that you bring into your tradition? I'm, I'm no. curious about what your tradition is. My tradition, the one in which I teach, is is tantric Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and um, the tantric Buddhism that comes out of the Himalayan region. Yeah. Badakh, Sikkim, Tibet, uh, Bhutan, yeah, and and in that um, tantric form of Buddhism, uh, there's this there's this idea that uh, the world is a mandala, and this idea of world as mandala is that the world is naturally, totally and utterly interdependent. So anything that we think, anything that we say, anything that we do affects every other part of the mandala. It's like we're all connected by this thread of interdependence and, um, and we're part of a larger whole. This is the idea of mandala. So on the one hand, that means we have a lot of responsibility as beings in the world, that what we do matters. And in the other, on the other hand, we're also held by this whole, uh, by the by the wider mandala. We're held by our relationships to other people. We're held by our relationship to the natural world. Um, so there's this notion in mandala that we're also deeply supported. We're both very responsible, but we're also very supported. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that notion of world as mandala, I find a very helpful concept for um, those of us that are working on the edge between spirituality and activism, because it's this notion that, that, that our actions on behalf of the planet are all meaningful, that it's not, we're not powerless by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination when we think of the world as mandala. Everything that we do, every small support that we give even bringing our own bags to the supermarket is not insignificant. It's part of creating the world that we want to see. It's part of our envisioning the mandala we want to live in. And, and, and the same goes for feeling supported. That, you know, sometimes when we're in, in conversation with these larger challenges, like the challenge of climate change and the challenge of our 
vastly changing world that can seem so out of our control that nevertheless, at some level, we are supported by our common humanity. We're supported by us all being in this interdependent web together. And that also changes how we see the ones on the other side of the divide. Mm. The other who we see as the one who is threatening the environment or the one who is threatening our ideal of social justice. They too are a part of the mandala. So we cannot actually other them. They're an extension of ourselves. So changes how we see the other and and, and opens up a possibility for being in a more compassionate and more dialogical relationship, even with the people that we are most feel most aversion for. Mm. I'm curious, Willa, um, what this kind of tantric practice might look like, mm. um, like on a practical level. Mm-hmm. And also, we are recording this just a few days after this terrible I mean it almost I, I hate to say it, it it's it's something that's become very easy to become numb to at this point because it's happening so often but this terrible mass shooting in the Florida high school and I'm wondering whether you might be able to to tell us in that context if you were speaking to someone who was really in the middle of that and, and dealing with that, or if you yourself would, or, or for any of us that are just sitting with the sort of pain of seeing that happen and, and, and wondering how to take action and what to do about that, if you could maybe tell us how tantric practice could be of use to us in this situation. Mm. So one of the, the principles of tantric practice, you know, tantra, the word, means to weave. And the notion of, of, of weaving is that, uh, in the case of Tantra, is that every part of our human experience is a thread and, it, and includes the experiences of, of many others, too. And um, all of these threads weave together to create a tapestry of this human life. In the case of Tantra, nothing is to be rejected. What does that mean exactly? It means that we live in a world that is uh, both incredibly joyful and deeply wounded. And to be a full participant in human life means to be able to embrace both the woundedness of the world the woundedness of the self, and also to embrace our resilience and our wisdom. That might sound abstract, but actually we can, the practice of Tantra means to to do that moment by moment. So what does that actually mean when we hear about a tragedy like this, this, um, this terrible um, tragedy of the mass shooting? In Florida recently. So our response you know, might initially be just so anger at, the, at this perpetrator, you know. But from the point of view of us all being a part of this human tapestry, even this perpetrator is human. 
We don't know the causes and conditions under which he acted, but and so are those that were wounded and killed. So one way we can we can work with this when we're sitting with our own sorrow and our our mixture of emotions, our anger and our outrage um, and our sadness is to learn to embrace our own woundedness in the present moment as a starting point by just instead of trying to get rid of those feelings to to meet them with kindness and compassion when they arise in our, ourselves as as a place of preparation to meet um, others with kindness and compassion in their sorrow. So uh, there's something about uh, the practice of, of Tantra is a, is a practice of developing a gaze of awareness on our own experience that is loving, open, and, and, and that doesn't exile any part of what's arising. Um, but that being said, you know, there may be real things that we can do and need to do in response to a tragedy like this. It's not enough just to work with our human emotions. We also might want to think about what can I actually do to help the world heal from a tragedy like this? And that might well include action. It might include joining a an activist group that that wants to talk about gun control, you know, real real actions in the world that help make this situation less likely to arise. Um, but we need to start by meeting our woundedness, and 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 not to feel. I don't think that we should ever feel like we're um, we're failing by getting depressed over this stuff. I think mm-hmm. I think the 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 trick of transformation, the truth of transformation is, a, is, an, is an alchemy that doesn't involve exiling any part of our experience, even our sadness, our woundedness, our depression, that all of that needs to be met and loved just as it is for us to, to be active in the world. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder, you know, when you were talking about facing these things with kindness and compassion, I could feel this little reaction in me going like, but it's not enough or, um, or how can I meet this with like soft kindness, you know, but I think, um, you know, you use this term fierce compassion a lot. And, um, and I wonder if you could speak about that a little bit, that compassion is not always soft and yielding though. Sometimes it is. Um, and also like maybe how that, that appears in the Buddhist tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I have, I have been, um, landing lately a lot on this term fierce compassion, I've noticed there's a real difference between how we generally conceptualize compassion in in a, in a European American context and how it is understood in at least the Asian tradition in which I practice. You know, I think we have an idea of compassion as being something kind of soft and yielding, a uh, little, little wishy-washy maybe, and compassion as a kind of a uh, giving in. And in fact, it, compassion doesn't have to be that way at all. 
in the Asian wisdom traditions, compassion is defined as that which upholds others in their deepest goodness while challenging them when they fall away from it. So there's a side of compassion that is upholding and affirming. And there's a side of compassion that is challenging. And both those sides need to be present for compassion to be skillful and not blind. Mm. So, so there is this notion of a fierce compassion. And, and you sometimes see it expressed in the, in the tantric traditions as these wrathful manifestations of enlightenment. I don't know if you've ever seen um, these images that you, you sometimes encounter. If you go to Asia, if you go to the Himalayan region and you're walking in and out of temples, you'll see them on the temple walls, these ferocious, snarling Buddhas. I mean, they're snarling. And they're looking pretty, uh, you know, pretty rough. And, and, and then when you delve deeper into the meaning of these wrathful, fierce Buddhas, we find that actually they're expressing something called a wrathful compassion, which is a compassion, the side of the compassion that is fierce and challenging and that we could say challenges us all to live up to our highest ideals, our best intentions, and that doesn't enable. Mm. So, so I think this, this idea of fierce compassion can be helpful now for us in the West, especially as we're facing these uh, really challenging world situations that we want to do it with love, that the strongest place we can come from is a place of love and a place of compassion and the sense of caring about the suffering of others. But the love that we, that we bring to bear on these issues shouldn't be one that is enabling and wishy-washy either. You know, it's one that, that we need action at this time, we need strong and unshakable bodhisattvas, uh, for want of a better term, something like a spiritual mensch. We need more of those. Um, so, so yeah, that's what I mean when I say compassion. I mean something uh, that is a, a strong, fierce gaze, but one that is also loving. Yeah. It's interesting that the Latin roots of the word compassion, passio, actually means to be acted upon. There's this sense of like um, if you're having passion, it's like a, a, there's an energy that's sort of overtaking you, that, that is sweeping you along. And then compassion adds that element of I'm going to do that with you. Like I'm going to enter into that sort of space of of feeling and and passion or suffering or whatever that is with you yeah and that can be so hard in this world that feels full of sorrow and and anger and and all the bad things that we don't want to be touching you know um but it's it's like the more that we can 
tap into that and hold the sorrows of the world that our capacity grows, you know, our capacity to hold those things grows. Mm -hmm. So that's hard. That's not an easy, an easy path. Yeah. There was a, a woman in a workshop, the one I was doing with Colin at the Garrison Institute. And we were asking, uh, we went around the room and we were asking everybody, what is your main motivator for the work that you do? And she said that her main motivator is anger. Hmm. And I thought that was so honest, raw, and striking. So she's an activist from Europe. And she's mm -hmm. an environmental activist. And she said, the main, my main motivator is anger. And that, you know, it really got me thinking, you know, anger is a powerful energy. Um, but as a main motivator, it's not necessarily sustainable. And in fact, she'd come to the workshop because she was exhausted mm -hmm. from just feeling, you know, sort of like you're running up against this wall. There's only so much you can do, only so fast you can push or, or and we're not going very fast in the right direction you know as a mm -hmm. as a society it could be argued uh, at least when it comes to ecological sustainability but but there isn't a kind of a power and a ferociousness to mm -hmm. anger and you know wouldn't it be amazing if we could harness that power without the burnout mm -hmm. and and I think that's where our spiritual practice really can help we don't have to exile anger, but we, we can learn how to discern um, between just using the raw energy of this emotion um, and letting the emotion eat away at us mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and also divorce us from the other so that yeah. we, it becomes self against other which also is not a very sustainable model for transformation. So there's a lot that can be learned um, from, I think, our spiritual traditions about how to work with these emotions when we're in an activist kind of environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I myself can sometimes be a fierce defender of anger because I I've find sometimes in spiritual contexts, um, not when you really get into the depths, of spiritual practice or spiritual tradition, but a lot of times um, there is this sort of idea that like we're just supposed to get rid of our anger or we're supposed to somehow meditate mm -hmm. it away or, you know, whatever. That it's um, bad. Right, that it's bad. And, and it is a powerful emotion that in my own experience is always – it's waking me up to something deeper, like a, a deeper well of feeling that's going on within me. Um, I see it in a lot of ways as the sort of inverse or the flip side of of love and desire and longing. You know, it, it's it's when the things that we want to see happen, that more beautiful world that we want we want to see in the world, is, is somehow being denied or frustrated or or not allowed to emerge. Sometimes that 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 anger comes out. Mm -hmm. um, at, and it is a powerful emotion, and it is something that I think we do need to learn to harness the energy of. And as you spoke to, it's something that is not sustainable. If that's it's it, it's like it's a great igniter, it's a great catalyst, it's a great initiating energy, and it's also not it's not good fuel or nourishment for sustaining us for the long haul, 
right? And we see that in activist communities that sometimes those which really rely on that anger to motivate and harness people into action, they ha- constantly have to create situations for people to get angry about, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's like they've constantly got to manufacture outrage mm-hmm. in order to keep people going. I was just uh, hearing about um, someone I know went to this conscious communication. It was like some sort of workshop about using conscious communication in like your your delivering of a message and how um, so many people rely on using um, anger and disgust and like these really strong emotions to get people like rallied around a cause. But but usually what happens is that people, it sends people into like a reactive place. And, and so then they'll give you money, but it's almost like, because they want you off their back. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like, okay, fine. Here's my $27 donation about this other terrible thing that Trump just did. (laughs) You know what I mean? And like, I thought that was kind of interesting. It's like, I think that what we see is that anger has been pathologized and is a pathology in a lot of ways. And so maybe it's about coming back to understanding anger as like a really, um, is like a gift that we can use and not as something that we're using just as like, you know, some tool that's worked before that we're just sort of falling back on because we don't have anything underneath it. You know, we don't have anything beyond that anger as, as activists sometimes. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, Willa, Willa, um, Because I, you know, this harnessing of the energy, is that what Tantra essentially is? Yes, yes. And actually, I was thinking about this um, anger in particular as you were speaking, and it is the harnessing of this energy. And so the understanding of an emotion like anger from the point of view of a, a Tantric perspective is that anger is only a problem when it's dualistic anger Hmm. that that our anger becomes unsustainable when we divide ourselves from the world that we live in when when anger is is non-dual which means when we can if we can drop the object at which we are angry we can drop the notion that that person is making me angry and just embrace the feeling of the anger itself. It's, it can become a kind of wisdom. And it becomes wisdom when we recognize it's just energy. It's just um, an unfolding that is very natural and very human just like clouds naturally arise in the sky and naturally dissolve back in the sky, anger is going to arise because we're human and it's going to dissolve again because we're human. Mm. And if we can just stay with the arising like we would with a storm arising in the sky and watch the storm pass and be with the storm and in the storm but not defined by it, that actually the anger can be then harnessed for whatever we need it for. And that Mm. the the one trick, the one turning point, the alchemical transformation 
comes from the dropping of our subject-object dualism. The notion that something out there is making me angry, which really, when you think about it, is, is an absurdity. It's an illusion. How could anyone put anger in you? Mm. It's, it's ours to own. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the, in the tantric traditions, every negative emotion has a wisdom associated with it. So for anger, the wisdom that's associated with it is called mirror-like wisdom. And I love that term. It's like this, this notion that if we were, um, if we could look directly at our own mind when we're angry, there'd be a kind of a sharp clarity there that we would, that would allow us to see ourselves actually like looking at ourselves in a mirror and so every emotion has a wisdom that goes with it in the tantric traditions Mm. i'd like to ask you willa because this is this is sometimes where i think people who are activists for for good reason maybe get frustrated or have have difficulty with some of these teachings especially about non-duality because the truth is, like, we live in a world, in some ways, the world of embodiment and form and manifestation, it relies on, on dualities to some extent, right? Like, we have to, to be and act in the world, we have to sometimes say yes to, to one thing and no to another thing. We have to um, be able to say, like, I, I think I'm going to choose this as good and reject something else as like bad or unhelpful or or not what I need right now and you know I I say that as someone who yesterday was really wrestling with my anger at the NRA and the ways in which um, the gun manufacturers have poured so much money into purchasing our politicians that they are completely unwilling to take any action in the face of a tragedy like this. And in that sense, I I do think sometimes it it is certainly from an activist perspective, some of the clarity is being able to, to give object to your anger, right? To say like, yeah, I'm angry and here's a target, not necessarily for me just to unleash all manner of, um, of uh, toxicity on, but here's a target for action for me to say I am going to specifically um, engage in conscious organizing action or, you know, whatever um, in order to undermine the influence of the NRA and the gun manufacturers on our political system. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good Point. And uh, and yet, and yet, I would say that we should, uh, of course, identify causes of mm. the world's suffering, and we need to work in a in a dualistic world in the sense of you know, using our common sense. What are the causes of this suffering, and and how can I be in a catalyst for change 
Um, but I think we're coming from an even stronger place if we are aware at the same time that we're working in a dualistic world of a second truth. Mm. You might say the truth, there's the truth of the dualistic world, and then there's a second truth, which is this truth of the interwoven threads of our common humanity. Mm -hmm. And that our strongest appeal to, let's say, to the to the folks in the NRA is an appeal from our common humanity to theirs. Mm-hmm. And, and while that appeal may need to be made many times, we have a better chance of reaching others when we recognize, I'm going to move into the language of non-duality, our non-dual humanity. Mm-hmm. That, that there is, on one level, we are deeply connected. On another level, it seems like we're chasms apart. Our beliefs can be chasms apart, but our deeper nature is connected. And, and we're stronger mm-hmm. when we have both truths on our side, yeah. rather mm-hmm. than just, I'm just angry at them, and they're just the, the problem. They're just the problem. We can't be dualistic about our non-duality. Well, and to me, that's really what, when we talk about sacred activism, what we're talking about is that ability to be able to sort of walk in both worlds, to Mm -hmm. to be able to hold both the awareness of that deeper connectedness and that deeper oneness, and yet to choose to act in the world of duality Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and and to be engaged in it and not to turn away from it. Sort of a tension that we have to hold. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to emotions, you know, I think, I think it's when we're in a heightened state of emotion that we can be the most dualistic. So Mm -hmm. if we can bring Mm -hmm. into the heightened state of emotion, a gaze of wisdom where we turn in, in the moment of our, strongest emotion to see the clarity of our own being at that moment there's actually this possibility that we won't just go down the road of othering but that we can use the the, this this energy this vibrancy of the emotion like emotion like anger and use it towards good in other words pour it into this model of fierce compassion fierce love. So we're not just working on our own behalf. We're working on behalf of all these others to whom we are inseparably connected. Hmm. Well, shall we wrap up? Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. We, yeah. we have to turn towards wrapping up, but I, I've really enjoyed um, listening to you speak, Willa, and, and hearing your perspective. I'm wondering if you can um, tell our listeners if they're interested in um, learning more about what you do or finding um, practices, some of the practices that you're talking about to assist them in their own paths. And, and maybe people who are interested in learning more about the tradition of Buddhism that you come from, what are some resources mm. for them? Yeah, if you're, if you're interested in, um, I always believe in the door of practice actually 
I could, you could mm-hmm. certainly, you could do some reading. Um, I, I do have a book out, Everyday Dharma, which is, is a resource for people that are interested in getting into a basic Buddhist practice. It might be useful. And there's also a lot of podcasts these days and apps for meditation practice. Um, the one that I tend to recommend is Insight Timer, which is an app. It allows you to download for free guided meditations and also talks on Buddhism, some of which are, are very good as a resource. Yeah, and sometimes just checking your local directory to see uh, what the Buddhist centers are locally and, and going to a center and seeing what you what you can learn from going to a live teaching. That's always the funnest way to learn, is then you get a whole experience with real human contact and um, and also in a physical place. And a live teaching is how I met you. I went to a workshop with you and, and Colin Bevan, who you mentioned earlier. I just wanted to throw that in there um, in case people didn't know what what you were talking about, that, that you and Colin Bevan, who's also a a Dharma teacher in another Buddhist tradition, and you did a, a workshop on fierce compassion at the Garrison Institute last summer. So, and that was really, really great. I was so happy to take part in that. That was really fun. And Chelsea, you you also led us through some fun work too. Did some work with us as well. That's <laughs> great. Yeah, that was really fun. I did some uh, <laughs> improv, some improv um, <laughs> games, and uh, and singing with with people there. So that was really fun. Thanks for having me in that. You're welcome. <laughs> Great. Well, we like to end each episode by asking what's inspiring or nourishing each of us. Um, Willa, what would you like to tell us today? What's nourishing or inspiring you today? Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, I would say the natural world today. I'm, in, I'm mm. not up in my retreat center in New Hampshire, but I often am. And right now I'm actually here in the Boston area, but the sky is gorgeous and it's warm for the first time this season. It's around 45 degrees, which is warm for here this time of year. So I've just been enjoying walking by the lake nearby and watching the swans eating in the lake. And yeah, just very beautiful. Nature is always my big nourisher. <laughs> mm, beautiful. And what about you, Rebecca? Um, you know, I have to say, it's just really community today. Um, after we finish recording this podcast, I'll be going to um, a community of energy workers that I'm part of that um, do a, a basically a, a free open to the public come and get free Reiki and, you know, sometimes there's massage therapists and all kinds of people doing different things there. And um, it's something I love going to every month because, it's just a really great community of people who are doing good work and the energy in that space is always really great. And today, especially, I'm really feeling like I need that. You know, it's it's making me way, very much aware of my, um, my interdependence with other people and the people in my community. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And what about you, Chelsea? Um, today... 
You know, I went to this talk last night with Michelle Alexander and Naomi Klein. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was really, really amazing to see these two women up there talking. And um, I saw it at Union Theological. Uh, Well, actually, they hosted it, and it was at Riverside Church, which is a Mm -hmm. huge church in New York. And it was just packed with people. Um, Sure. And... Either one of those women alone would like pack the place out. So together, I'm sure that was... Yeah, they were really amazing. Um, and so there's so many little tidbits, but there are two that have been sort of sticking with me. And one is, actually, both of them are things that Naomi Klein said. And one was um, sort of about revolution. And she was like, if there was a revolution, I think that so many people in this country would just like join up right away. And, but I was kind of thinking that maybe the revolution is happening in a way that it doesn't normally happen, which is Mm -hmm. sort of, um, like instead of like this big fiery, like uprising with like explosive, angry, aggressive energy and fighting that maybe it's happening in much smaller ways, um, in slower ways around the country. And, um, but anyway, so that's sort of been something I've been thinking about. And, um, and then the other one was, she was talking about shock, you know, she wrote this book, the shock doctrine and, Mm -hmm. and how Donald Trump is such a shock to the system, but a really, really a shock is just something that we don't have a narrative or a story for. Mm -hmm. And, but really, if you think about it, like Donald Trump is like totally the most cliche thing that could have happened to us. You know what I mean? He's like a walking, like avatar of the shadow of the U S and, um, but so it just got me thinking about like story and how important that is. And, and I think that that ties into a lot of what, what we've talked about today, which is like our shared humanity and our commonalities. And, um, and just like, I don't know, stories to me are like the human ways of like putting things. I don't know if Mm -hmm. that makes sense, but, um, yeah, but yeah. We talk a lot of times in spiritual circles about letting go of our stories, but mm-hmm. but we also need story. We need story, yeah. and and sometimes sometimes we need to let go of stories and let them end and create new stories. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that narrative function I think is an essential part of what it means to be human. Yeah, yeah. So and I think that really speaks to that sort of tension between the non-duality and the <laughs> duality Absolutely. that we need to hold. So absolutely. Well, thank you, Willa, so much yeah, for joining us. You. This has been really enlightening, if I can use that word. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you for doing what you do. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I, I was so it. great to spend this yeah. time with you. And yeah, yeah, thanks. Well, take care. Thank you. You too. Until we meet yes. again. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye, Bye-bye. Willa. If you want to hear more episodes on spirituality and activism, check out listentotherising.com. And even better, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time on The Rising. Music